Okay. Let's uh, have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you this evening for this time together when we can study the book of Romans. We're so thankful that uh, even though we're not able to meet in person, that we, through your good providence and the technology that we have, we can study this uh, outstanding book of the Bible, this so important book, down through the ages that's helped so many Christians and can help us too as we seek to serve you, as we seek to please you, as we seek to grow as Christians. We pray you'll bless each one who's joining us for this class and that the Spirit of God will work in each one of our lives to cause us to be conformed to the image of Christ. As Paul says, that's the very goal of what he's writing about in the book of Romans. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So if you're looking at your notes, we're looking at page one. We're looking at the introduction here. And uh, the first thing we want to look at is the importance and influence of this particular book. And uh, I can't believe that I got things popping up on my screen here. Uh, but um, I see some green marks on my <laughs> screen there. What is that about? I don't know. <laughs> what is that, Larry? It was me. Sorry, I won't oh. do it again. Okay. <laughs> it is. Uh, I think we have the feature on that allows any participant to annotate your slides. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I should probably remove that if I can. So anyway. Yeah. If you'd like me to, I can hunt around in the preferences if you want to. You or PNZ want to make me co-host? I'll okay. Do that before I take off. Let me let me do that. Uh, I will make you co-host. Let me see how I do that down here. If um, you, I think, click on more next to my name in the participant list, yeah, let's that see. will be one of the options. Oh, more next to your name. Okay, well, I'll go over here to make co-host. Okay, you just been made a co-host. All right, thanks. All right. So I just, uh, let me say at the beginning. Excuse me a minute. Okay. It, can I save the file to my iPad or no? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can Sorry. save it. It's all right. Um, I do want you to be able to ask questions. Uh, this is a, a book that I'm sure questions will come. So if you have a question, we'll try to use that participant thing. Um, raise your hand. And I've got Pansy here with me. She'll try to see it, or you can just unmute yourself and uh, and uh, holler out, and we'll try to hear you. So let's go back. Uh, we're looking at the importance uh, and influence of the uh, um, of Romans and. Um, Try to mute, I want to mute, mute you, uh, Diane. Uh, importance and influence of uh, Romans. And, okay, somebody else is trying to mute everybody here. So try, keep yourself muted if you can, unless you have a question, all right? 
Um, and don't mark on my screen. <laughs> we'll try to get that off. <laughs> so I want to start here with William Tyndall. Uh, Tyndall, as you may or may not know, was an important uh, man in the history of the translation of the Bible into English. He was the first, uh, first person to uh, translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. And uh, so um, he uh, is quite a quite a, quite an influential person in that he influenced all of our English Bibles. And here's what he said: He said he described Romans as the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. Uh, and so he this this is a sentiment that's been expressed by many many people. Uh, that Romans has had such a tremendous effect on their lives. Uh, he, of course, uh, produced the first uh, English translation in, from the original Greek in 1526, and then he was burned at the stake in 1536. Um, Martin Luther, we all probably know of as uh, the man we think of as the originator, the beginner the instigator of the Protestant Reformation in 1517 with his 95 theses. And he was a Roman Catholic uh, priest and, a, and uh, a scholar. And uh, he was converted through the influence of the Book of Romans as he was studying Romans. Uh, and he said this, the epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It's, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it's word for word by heart, but also that it should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. So it has been, uh, it has been looked upon as, um, let's see if I can clear this. Yes, I did. Uh, it has been looked upon as, very, very influential uh, in the history of the church. Uh, Romans, as I say here in number uh, three, is the, well, I guess I'm gonna say it wrong. Now my slide doesn't wanna project here. <laughs> Uh, let's see, get rid of We're the seeing the uh, Martin Luther slide. Is that the one you're trying to show? I'm back. I got it. When I, when I had the, when I went to clear her annotation at the top of the toolbar, I, uh, I have to close that annotation toolbar or I can't advance the slide for some That's reason. Awesome. So here's, uh, here's Rome. Can everybody see that? Do you see that, Larry? Okay. Everybody say, okay. So Romans, as I say, is the longest of Paul's 13 epistles. He wrote 13 that he names. And uh, it's in our place in Scripture, the first epistle in the, book, in the New Testament. You know, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, then Acts. And it's in the first place because of its length. So generally the epistles are put there first, the Pauline epistles, and then they're put by length. So Romans was not the first written, as you can see here, the sixth, uh, uh, time-wise, but it is the longest. 
um, that's how they're placed. And as I say, this is a book that has been very influential, but it, it can be difficult to understand. It's, uh, it's not easy. Uh, there's a lot of things in it that are difficult. Uh, Peter says in his epistle in 2 Peter 3.6 that his letter contains some things that are hard to understand. So the apostle Peter said that, but it's very rewarding. So I want you to read Romans. If you have time, try to read through the book as much as you can, but don't be discouraged. It can be tough going. Um, I saw this on Facebook on Sunday. Somebody was talking about reading through Romans. And um, so there it is. Uh, what happened when they, <laughs> the first nine chapters. So I'm sure that won't happen to you, but you know, it, it can be sometimes discouraging as we start this process. But hang in there and try to ask me questions. If you don't understand, feel free. Uh, no one's gonna think you're silly or dumb or anything. This is, a, this is a difficult thing. So hang in there and we will try to answer as we can. And I say hit the, hit the participant button at the bottom and the participant uh, uh, window will come up and you can uh, raise your hand or you can unmute yourself and just shout out. Let's talk about uh, authorship here a little bit. Um, Paul, of course, is the author. He claims to be the author in verse one of the epistle. Uh, he actually mentions that he had a scribe or what's called an amanuensis. That's a technical term for somebody who's taking shorthand to actually write down the epistle. And that was Tertius or uh, a Tertius who's named in 1622. In fact, we know that Paul uh, tended to use a, use the scribe uh, to uh, dictate his epistles to. This was a common thing in the ancient world. Uh, many people did this. They had uh, slaves often and others who were trained to, uh, to take down their shorthand. So this is what happened in this case uh, with Paul. Um, Paul uh, speaks of being a, uh, as I say here, number two, he speaks of himself as a Jew by birth he was born in the city of Tarsus, and you can see Tarsus there, uh, where Rome is on the right of your screen uh, in uh, southern Turkey today, what we think of as Turkey, there is Tertius in the province of Cilicia. Uh, he was born there, uh, and he was a Roman citizen by birth. Now that's the most unusual thing, one of the most unusual things about the apostle is that he is a Roman citizen because uh, generally people in Paul's day, unless they lived in this, unless they were from the city of Rome, mostly, they were not Roman citizens. Uh, when we think of citizenship today, we think of citizenship as being identified by a country. But in the ancient world, it was generally a citizenship of a city, uh, like in the Greek city-states, Sparta. You were a citizen of Sparta or a citizen of Athens. The concept of countries is something that evolved really sort of later on. And so Rome um, started as a city. Uh, traditionally, Rome was founded in 753 BC, that's tradition. And it was uh, dominated by some people called the Etruscans. And there you can see the little space on Rome, a little center, a little uh, orange thing on the map, that's Rome, just a small area. And 
and out of that little group of people who lived in Rome, they developed a tremendous empire, but they did it by conquest, mostly by war and grabbing territory. And so, uh, first of all, they threw off the Etruscans in 509 and established a republic. Uh, and as time went on, so this is the sixth century, they began to acquire more territory. And uh, their principal, uh, principal foe, their rival, was a country uh, called Carthage, or a city called Carthage in North Africa. Uh, yeah, I, can you see my pointer here that's going around where Carthage is at there? Okay, so yeah. there's Carthage. And Carthage, uh, uh, Rome had a series of wars with Carthage uh, in, the second, in the second century. Uh, they, uh, Three, three wars, and they conquered a lot of territory, you can see. Now, they still don't have what we think of as, the, as Jerusalem or Israel or anything, but they, they first conquered Italy in the fourth century, all of the Italian peninsula. Then they conquered all this land. They came into Greece in the second century and conquered Greece and dominated that, and they kept conquering and moving forward. Uh, and then in the first century, they came down into uh, Israel and they took control of Israel and this territory down here in North Africa. And they just kept conquering and conquering and conquering. And uh, so the time we get to the New Testament, the age of Augustus, the, Jesus was born under Augustus Caesar, they have control of this entire territory. But the only people who are really citizens, Roman citizens are people who live in Rome. <laughs> so just because you're born over here in territory governed by, by uh, Rome doesn't mean you're a citizen. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until about the year 100 that people in the Italian peninsula became Roman citizens automatically. But people out in these provinces could become Roman citizens if uh, they were, did some special deed for Rome, uh, some general uh, uh, would conquer this territory and be helped by citizens. He could reward them with citizenship. You could bribe your way, you could pay money. But it was very unusual for a person where Paul was at to be a Roman citizen. And we don't know how he became a Roman citizen. He said he was born a Roman citizen. It would be, would be fascinating to know how, he did, how that was true. But he was a Roman citizen by some way uh, through birth. And that was to his great advantage. Uh, now, as a number three here, I'm talking about Paul as a young man. As a young man, Paul, uh, probably around 13, maybe, that's uh, when a Jewish boy became a man, he moved to Jerusalem from Tarsus there uh, in Syria, Cilicia, as you can see on your map, down to Jerusalem. And uh, he studied under Gamaliel, who was a, the most famous rabbi of the day. And Paul became a Pharisee, uh, which was one of the sects of Judaism. Uh, and uh, there were a number of sects, Sadducees and others, but he became a leader, actually. He led in the persecution of Christians. You remember, he was a leader in the persecution of Stephen. He was, he was really kind of operating as the leader of that. And uh, uh, until his conversion. He, on, in Acts chapter 9, you remember, he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians in Damascus, and God saved him and appointed him, as I say here, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. 
and that's an important designation we'll talk about. Now, of course, the destination here is the city of Rome we talked about here. Uh, here's Rome. Uh, and uh, this was the capital and the largest city, thought to be maybe a million people, possibly. And a large Jewish, Jewish population uh, in the city of Rome. Um, the Jews uh, were in a lot of the major cities uh, in the Roman Empire, and there was a number in Rome. We know that because there were a number of synagogues uh, that had been found there, and so there were a good number of Jews. Now, Jews uh, were not looked upon kindly in the Roman Empire, and often they faced expulsion. They were ex expelled from Rome in year 41, and then again in 49, but they were allowed to, they were allowed to return uh, some years later, probably year 54. Uh, so uh, the religion was basically polytheistic, worshiping the gods, the Olympian gods on Mount Olympus. But a Judaism attracted a number of converts, uh, what are called God-fearers and proselytes. So what's the difference? A proselyte is a full convert to Judaism. There weren't too many of those because it required circumcision of the males. And uh, circumcision was thought to be a very terrible, <laughs> wicked thing in the ancient world uh, for a man to undergo circumcision. So you didn't get full proselytes. You had what we call God-fearers, people who believed in the God of Israel, went to the synagogue and so forth. People like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and others. So you have these God-fearers uh, and, and others who are attracted to Christianity. Now the church in Rome, as I say here, number two under C destination, it was not founded by the Apostle Paul. He makes that very clear in, uh, in, the, uh, in his writing. I had some pictures here I was gonna show you of what Rome probably looked like in Paul's day. Here's kind of a diagram of the city. Here's the Tiber River that flows through Rome. And uh, there's various things here. Here's the Circus Maximus, which was uh, the one of the stadiums in Rome. Here's a, a, a recent archaeological, here's a recent uh, uh, model of Rome that's been built. Now this is, this is built a little after the Apostle Paul's time because over here you have the Colosseum. The Roman Colosseum was not built, started until the year 80 after Paul's time. But here's the, here's the Circus Maximus. This is 2,000 foot long. This is where the chariot races. Have you ever seen Ben-Hur? Uh, the chariot races, you know, this is where, this is what they're, this is the kind of thing they're depicting in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had one of these two, apparently, uh, we're we understand. And, uh, but these, these, uh, these things were very popular. They had gladiatorial games there too. Uh, and so uh, that's Rome. And uh, the church, as I say, was not founded by Rome. Uh, it had been established years before. Uh, he wrote his epistle, and I say most likely was founded by converts on the day of Pente from the day of Pentecost. Remember the day of Pentecost, there were people from Jews from all over the the ancient world who came to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. As I say, Jews were dispersed in all these various places in the empire. All these cities had Jewish populations, but 
Jews, Jewish men especially, were supposed to return to Jerusalem three times a year, according to the law, for the various feasts, three feasts. One of them was Pentecost. So visitors would come into Rome. In Acts chapter 2, they came in, and that's when many of them were converted. And it says specifically there were people from Rome there. And they obviously went back to Rome, and apparently that's where the church got its start. Most people feel, most scholars who study this, think that it started in the Jewish synagogue. That is, these Christians went back, these Jewish Christians went back to Rome, and they went to the synagogue. And the synagogues began to be sort of turned over, converted to Christianity. But then remember we talked about the expulsion of the Jews. So in the synagogue, you had, you know, Christians, and you had Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So Judaism sort of dominated the Christianity, but then the Jews got expelled in 41 and 49. And once they got expelled, the synagogues, you couldn't meet in the synagogues. So Christians began to meet in houses, particularly house churches. And so the Gentiles began to dominate. In fact, Paul says in Romans 16, if you read there about the people he greets there, he mentions several house churches. He actually mentions their church that meets in this person's house and so forth. So there were these house churches where people met, and uh, the Gentiles came then to sort of dominate the church. But there was a, still a strong Jewish presence, and apparently there was a strong connection to the mother church in Jerusalem. And that brings up all kinds of issues about the law that we're going to see in the book of Romans, and I want to talk about that. That's very, very important. Well, what about the place of writing. Where did Paul write this from? Where was he at when he wrote this? Paul wrote this from the, as I say, from the city of Corinth. Now, what I'm showing here is Paul's third missionary journey. If you remember, Paul had three missionary journeys, uh, specifically in the book of Acts, starting in Acts 13, his first missionary journey, and then in Acts chapter, the end of chapter 15, and that chapter 18. So each one of these missionary journeys starts in the city of Antioch. And uh, in this third missionary journey, Paul travels from Antioch and he goes into the area of Galatia. This is the province of Galatia. You can see Galatia here. And Paul had, remember, gone on to this area on his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. He established churches in Antioch of Pisidian, Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. And so that was his first missionary journey. He went to Cyprus first and then over here. And then on his second missionary journey, he came back through here. But on his third missionary journey, he travels through this area because he wants to go over to Ephesus. And Paul's third missionary journey is spent mostly in Ephesus. Uh, he had been to Ephesus on his second missionary journey just briefly and left Priscilla and Aquila there. He went back to Jerusalem, and now he returns, and he spends three years in Ephesus. That's the longest time we know he spent in any particular city. Ephesus was a great center, a religious, commercial center, a very large city in Asia, and people came there from all over the world to worship uh, the goddess Artemis. It was a center for the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis, who was a fertility goddess. The Romans called her Diana. But people came there from all over the world uh, to worship her. And so Paul spent three years there. And that's probably where these churches got started. Remember in Revelation, 
when Pastor Kim was teaching Revelation 2 and 3, he was talking about the churches of Asia Minor. And most people feel like when Paul was in Ephesus, people got saved and went back home, went out to these other cities. And churches, these churches probably got started from Paul's longtime ministry. Because Paul's, Paul's strategy was to go into the cities and evangelize and then let those people evangelize further on out. He tried to go to the major cities. So he does. He goes to Ephesus and he spends three years there. He has a very successful ministry. He's teaching and everything. But he runs into opposition because so many people are being saved in the city of Ephesus that it's affecting the worship of the goddess Artemis. And a lot of people make their money in Ephesus from uh, uh, selling things to the visitors who come in, souvenirs and other things. There's actually a, a guild of silversmiths there in the city of Ephesus, and they make these little, little, little souvenirs, and they're losing their money because people are turning away from worship of Ephesus. So they start a riot, and Paul has to leave Ephesus, and he leaves, and he goes uh, over to uh, Troas and then to Macedonia. So Paul is leaving, and he's coming to Corinth. He's on his way to Corinth. He stops in Troas. Uh, he had sent Titus on to Corinth, and he's waiting for him, and he doesn't find him. He goes to Macedonia. It doesn't say where he went. It could be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Remember, he established churches in all those areas. But he goes to Philippi, and there he writes 2 Corinthians. And then he goes on, and in Acts chapter 20, it says he arrives in Greece, that's Corinth, where he stays three months. Now, he had established the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey, and he, st he stays there three months, and he writes the epistle to the Romans there, uh, as we said, in about the year 56, and that's uh, the date here I'm looking at is AD 56. Now, why did Paul write this letter to the Romans at this time? We want to talk about the occasion and purpose. What's the difference between occasion and purpose? Well, the purpose is why you're writing. They're really closely related. The occasion is sort of, why am I writing this now? What, what prompted Paul to write to the Romans now? He obviously knows about the Roman church. He's had a lot of contacts. You can see that from Acts 16. He knows a lot of people there. Why is he writing a letter to them at this particular time? Um, and that's what we're looking at. Well, Paul plans to visit Rome, as I mentioned. Paul was planning to visit Rome. And so he uh, wants to write a letter. He says, he says here, um, let me close this so I can see it. Uh, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, now Illyricum is really sort of north of where Philippi is and Thessalonica, north of Greece there, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So Paul is saying here that what I've tried to do is to go as the apostle to the Gentiles, 
to Gentile areas where they have not heard the gospel, a pioneer missionary. I didn't go where others have gone. And he actually quotes Isaiah 52 here, which is, this is the, about the servant, Jesus, and it's talking about Jesus, and it's telling that uh, those who were not told about him will, will be heard, will hear about him, but they won't understand. So he, he says, uh, that's my goal, and that's why, verse 22, I've been hindered from coming to you. So I haven't come to Rome, because there's been a church in Rome ever since I've been saved, and I've been establishing churches, and I've been in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. I've been working in the east, establishing churches, and he says, verse 23, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. So now Paul says, I'm going to the furthest western parts of the Roman Empire, uh, and I hope to see you while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people. Paul has an offering uh, that he's taking. So, so there's Paul. He is planning to visit there, as I say, and he wants to, he wants them, he wants to tell them about that. He, uh, as I say here, he wants them to pray for him. He says, I urge you brothers and sisters in Romans 15, 30 through 32, to join me in my struggle by praying for, to God for me, that I may be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I make to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people, so that I may, be, may come to you with joy by God's will and be refreshed. And he goes on to say, um, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of God's people. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor, among God's people, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them that the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' blessing. They owe it to the Jews to share with their material blessings. So um, what Paul is saying here is, Paul says, I've really evangelized the eastern part of the empire, and I have been collecting an offering from the Gentile churches that I have established to help the Christians who are in Jerusalem. They're suffering right now. There's some sort of difficulty, persecution, famine, something. And I'm gonna take that to them. And then when I finish that task, I'm gonna leave Jerusalem and I'm gonna to try to, I'm gonna to come to Rome and I want to uh, set, set up my, my new base home in Rome. Uh, and, uh, now, we know what happened, actually, is Paul does get back to Jerusalem, but he gets arrested. <laughs> he gets arrested in the temple, and he is sent as a prisoner to Rome. So it, he gets to Rome, but not like he was thinking he would. Let's talk about uh, the occasion and purpose here again. Uh, number three, Paul never specifically states his purpose in the letter itself. So we're left to the evidence from the contents of the letter and Paul's personal situation at the time of writing. Paul's life and ministry had been the subject of a lot of controversy. Paul therefore needs to set the record straight if he wants the Roman Christians to support him in his mission to Spain. Thus he needs to take up his pen to set forth his understanding of the gospel, what Paul calls my gospel. Now, so what's going on here is Paul wants to make Rome the new base of his operation. And if they're going to be his home church, in a sense, 
They've got to be on the same page he is. And his page is the only page. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. An apostle is a representative directly of Jesus Christ on the earth. Paul's the Pope. <laughs> yeah, there was a legitimate Pope one time, and that was the Apostle Paul. Um, and in the sense that he had direct authority from Christ, and his understanding of the gospel was the only true understanding of the gospel. And so the book of Romans is setting that forth. That's what we're going to study in Romans 1 through 8, is the gospel and Paul's understanding, which is the correct understanding. And he wants to get those Roman Christians on the same page so that as he goes forth to Spain and other places, they can support him and they'll be with him uh, because he didn't establish a church. And so he has to make sure they're on the same page or they have the same doctrine he has. I say here, um, what seems clear from the contents of the epistle, uh, for instance, the, the, the discussion about the weak and the strong, is that Paul is seeking to resolve the conflict between Jews and Gentiles in Rome. So remember we said the church started in the synagogue and uh, it uh, moved then to house churches uh, as uh, the synagogues were probably closed down and Gentiles became prominent in the church, but there's still a, a large Jewish influence. There has been from the very beginning. And the weak and the strong referred to questions about the Mosaic law. Uh, the, some in the church uh, felt that Christians should continue to observe the Mosaic law. They're, they're the weak and the strong are saying, no, we'll talk about that. Uh, so Paul is writing to sort of unify the church, I say here, which is necessary. Now, I want to talk here about uh, this, this problem of the Jews and Gentiles in the church. And I wanna talk about the, 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 the word law. Now, as you read through those first eight chapters, I hope you'll take time to read through those and kind of get a feel for what's going on there. As you read through those first eight chapters, you'll see that, the, well, you'll notice the word law quite a bit. It occurs 68 times. That's a lot. Um, I say here, how Christians are related to the Mosaic law was probably at the center of the conflict between Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, why would this, what's going on here? Well, think about this. Jesus was a Jew. The Jerusalem church was a Jewish church. The temple is still standing. You know, on the day of Pentecost, they're going to the temple. These Christians are saved. They're meeting in their houses. But what about the Mosaic law? What about the temple? Sacrifices are still being given there. It's, a, it's difficult for these early Christians to figure out exactly what is our relationship to the Mosaic law? Do we have to keep the law or not? Or how does that work? Uh, what about Gentiles? Do they have to keep it? And, you know, that's part of the controversy in the book of Acts, Acts 15, and in Paul's epistles. So there is, there's a lot to be try to understand here about what exactly is the relationship of Gentiles and even Jews to this Mosaic law. And that causes some conflict even in the church here. Now, the situation in Rome is not like the situation in Galatia. Remember in the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing there with some outsiders, usually called Judaizers, who've come into the church at Galatia, which is a Gentile church, really just 
all Gentiles pretty much, and saying, you Gentiles must keep the law and be circumcised to be saved. You must keep the law to be saved. And Paul says, no, Gentiles don't have to keep the law to be saved. Nobody has to keep the law to be saved. You can't be saved by keeping the law. Uh, and so he is adamantly against that. He considers that heresy. And he says, may they spend eternity in hell, those who preach this kind of doctrine. That's not what's going on in Rome. These people are not saying you've got to keep the law to be saved, but they feel strongly that, you know, here's the Mosaic law, here's the Old Testament. Don't we have to kind of keep some of those things or, or what is going on there? And uh, so Paul is trying to address that situation. Now, if you notice this little diagram I have, I have a little diagram that uh, circles, ceremonial, civil, moral. So it's possible if we want to think about the law to categorize it in, in under various themes or various categories. Now the law can't technically be separated. It's kind of a unit, it's one, but there are obviously some laws that are more ceremonial like sacrifices, different types of sacrifices, that's ceremonial. There's civil laws like our civil laws, if you read through uh, the Pentateuch. And there are moral laws. Primarily, we're thinking of the Ten Commandments. And so uh, that's the question. Uh, do we have to keep some of these or any of these and so forth? And Paul uh, is not opposed to keeping some of this law, especially because some of this law, the moral law, is eternal. And we'll have to talk about that a little later, about the relationship of the Christian to the law. But obviously, God has had moral principles from the Garden of Eden. It was wrong to murder in Genesis. It was wrong to commit murder in Genesis. But it was then put into the Ten Commandments. It was wrong to commit murder before the Ten Commandments came along. It was wrong to lie before the Ten Commandments came along. It was wrong to commit adultery before the Ten Commandments. So the law just codified God's moral law. So God's moral law does not change, it's always in effect. And so clearly we have to keep that. But there's a question in these Christians' minds, some of these Christians at Rome about, what about some of these other uh, food laws? Do we have to, are we supposed to eat ham? Can we eat ham? Can we have our ham sandwich? Now they didn't really have ham sandwiches, but <laughs> you know, can, can Paul loved ham sandwiches, as a matter of fact. I, you get that from reading the Greek. Now I'm just joking, of course, but you, you no, uh, that's the question. Can, can, can Christians eat ham? Because Jews couldn't. And so does that still come into effect? So there's some disagreement. And Paul is trying to help them through that in Romans chapter 14. So he wants to unify these Christians around his understanding of the gospel. Well, then uh, we come to the next page, or we come to the theme, I'm sorry, uh, page uh, three in your notes there. I say it's, it's difficult to uh, find one overarching theme that can stand up overall, but probably the best suggestion is the gospel. Uh, we could go into more detail about that, but probably the theme is the gospel. Now, there are a lot of other important things like justification by faith and so forth.
some have said that's the theme, but that's only part of the book of Romans. So let's, let me ask you if there's any questions. I'll uh, kind of stop here and just see if anybody has a question or anything about what we've gone over. And uh, if not, we will go ahead and kind of dive for a few minutes into the book here. Okay. Um, let's look here then at uh, the introduction. Just a few things about the introduction. Paul begins his letters, if you've read his letters, they kind of all begin very similarly. Uh, that is, they start with uh, Paul writing to a certain church. That's what I call A to B. So if you look in the ancient world, that's the way letters were written. John writing to Bob, and then the word greeting. And Paul generally follows that, like that's 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, grace and peace. Instead of the word greeting, he uses grace and peace. So he's generally following the normal style, but Romans is qu quite different in the sense that the introduction is extremely long. If you look at that introduction, the verse one says Paul, and then to the Romans comes in verse seven. It takes him seven verses. He does that in one verse in 1 Thessalonians. What, why is that? What's going on here? Well, I think the reason here is that Paul is, is using this to sort of introduce himself to the Romans. Remember, Paul didn't establish this church. They know about the Apostle Paul, obviously. I mean, his name is throughout the known world at that time, but he, he's writing to a church that he didn't establish, and so he has a longer introduction here to sort of introduce himself to them. He wants to establish his credentials uh, as an apostle with a worldwide commission to proclaim the good news. He wants them to say, listen, I have the right to write you a letter and command your obedience to it because I am the apostle to the Gentiles chosen by Jesus Christ for this mission. The other apostles, the 12, were basically to the Jews. Now they, they, you know, Peter went to uh, Gentiles, but basically their ministry was to the Jews. The apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, let's look at his credentials here for a moment. Uh, 1A here. Uh, it says, uh, our text says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. So here's Paul. Paul is a Roman citizen. We remember we said he's a Roman citizen. <clears throat> and Roman citizens at this time had three names. I think most of us in America, we tend to get three names. A first name, a middle name, and a last name. Well, Romans had three names too, um, but it was a little different. Uh, they had a prinomen, a nomen, and a cognomen. The middle name is really the surname or the family name, the nomen. So uh, when we think of Julius Caesar, we think Julius is his first name and Caesar is his last name. It's just the opposite. Caesar is his first name and Julius is his family name. <laughs> so he's of the Julio family. Uh, Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero, very famous Roman, 
we call him Cicero, we call him by his first name. Uh, his family name was Tullius. Paul's cognomen, his first name, was Paulus, a, a common cognomen. We just don't know his, what his other names were. He had to have them because he's a Roman citizen. It would be interesting to know what his nomen was because that would tell us something about his family, but we just don't uh, have that to it, given to us. And they also had a Hebrew name because as a Jew, he was, he was given a Hebrew name, an extra name uh, that was similar to his Gentile name, usually having sort of the same meaning. And this was common in the New Testament. Jews, uh, Jews by the time of the New Testament, they, they would commonly give their children a kind of a Gentile name. So you have that in the New Testament. John also called Mark. So his name is not John Mark. <laughs> uh, his name was John. That's his Hebrew name, Mark. Simeon called Niger. Jesus called Justice. Saul called Paul. So the the Saul did not change. Paul didn't. Uh, Saul did not change his name to Paul. Sometimes people think when the Book of Acts, when Paul, when Saul got converted, he changed his name to Paul. That's not what happened. He always had the name Paul. He just started using that name, or Luke starts using that name, when Paul is now working among Gentiles, particular. He's also called the uh, servant of Christ Jesus. Uh, the word servant means really slave in secular Greek. And uh, it's, it's a title that Paul uses of himself in Romans 1.1, so forth. Uh, it's emphasizing his complete devotion to the master. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that translators uh, have had a difficult time knowing what to do with this word over the years because uh, the Roman kind of slavery was different than the slavery that most of us think of. We think of the, uh, the terrible slavery of African Americans in our country, and that's how we think of slaves. <clears throat> the, usually slaves in the ancient world had a better uh, treatment. In fact, slavery in the ancient world was not racial. Uh, it wasn't depending on your race. It would just depend if you were a conquered person or you had to sell yourself into slavery. Uh, slavery was generally not, was more humane. Now, it could be very difficult, but so translators uh, recently, there's a video on the internet about the ESV and what they, English Standard Version, debating whether they should translate the word slave, which it sort of means, or servant. They chose servant because they were afraid that the word slave would conjure up what we, what we think of as slavery in our country of African-Americans. That's not exactly the kind of slavery that happened in the New Testament, so they chose the word servant, as does the NIV here. And then it says he's called to be an apostle. It stresses the character of Paul's calling. He's an apostle by calling here. He's an apostle by divine calling. Uh, rather than human appointment. Remember Galatians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by God, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And remember I said an apostle was a representative. That's what apostle means, a representative of Jesus Christ himself here on earth. And uh, so Paul is saying right at the beginning of this letter, he's not writing as some private individual. He's not writing as just a gifted teacher. 
He's a called apostle. He has authority of God to speak to these people. And then he says he's set apart for the gospel of God. So this further defines the call. It's for or indicates the purpose or goal. Paul is set apart by God as an apostle for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of God. Same word in 2 Corinthians 2.12. I went to Troas too for the purpose of preaching the gospel of Christ. And that's what Paul is, an apostle chosen and called by God to preach the gospel. 